Horror Story is a podcast about strange and mysterious true horrors. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and producer of Horror Story. In the show, I have an episode called There's a Stranger in Your Walls, and it's about a woman that moved out of her home because she thought it was being haunted. But the truth happened to be even scarier than the ghosts. Other stories dive deep into the supernatural, like the one of the most infamous cases of real ghosts, called The Haunting in San Pedro. But if you're into mysteries, learn about the pilot who disappeared in the sky. All of these and more are available on Horror Story right now, with more episodes coming out every single week. You can search for the podcast by typing in Horror Story on your podcast app right now. The show is the one with the yellow letters. I'll see you over there on Horror Story. True Scary Story is a podcast about personal, terrifying stories dealing with the paranormal. True accounts from people who live through strange and supernatural experiences, told directly by them. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, and for years I have been listening to stories from people who have shared their most frightening true experiences with me. There was one story recently called There's Something in the Closet where Juanita tells us about her experiences growing up in a house where she would see objects physically move on their own, but the rest of her family would act as if nothing was happening. It wasn't until years later that she found out what the source of it all was. Which makes me wonder, if you were to witness a haunting, who would believe you? Come find True Scary Story by typing it into your app right now. I'll see you over there. On True Scary Story. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about strange visitors and deadly decreases. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Marcus Woolley and Brian Babb are voice talents Nate Dufort, Michelle Kane, and Otis Jiry. Now... Get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. 
Our first tale this evening is written by Marcus Woolley and is performed by Nate Dufort. In it, we'll meet Simon, a man lying on his deathbed, stuck in a dull hospital room, unable to move. He waits patiently for death to come and take him from his prison, the body he has lived in for 94 years. That is, until he gets a nightly visitor. This dark figure warns him of his doom to come, reminding Simon of the past he has lived. Is Simon doomed? Now, without further ado, I present to you Simon's Past. Time is almost up for Simon. He lies in his hospital bed, waiting with each passing moment the same as the last. He shares a room with other elderly people, waiting for their number to be called. He is dying. The dull room has no form of entertainment, the TV is out of order, and the radio only plays the same music from a local station, music that he does not like. If he hadn't lost the use of his legs, he would have walked out of this place long ago and waited for death in the comfort of his own home. There is no point making friends with any of the people here. Some are gone, their brains given up on them long ago. The ones who are sane could be there one moment and gone the next. Nurses closing the curtains around them before whizzing them away the morgue. Luckily, Simon's bed is near the window. He can see the tops of the trees from the local park next to the hospital. He wishes to feel the breeze again, being so close to the seaside. Simon has many fond memories of the coastal path that scratched on the cliff's edge, hearing the seagulls call whilst the waves roll onto the hidden beaches below a nice little town to grow old. Tea or coffee, the nurse asks, taking Simon out of his days. Oh, uh, coffee, please. The coffee was awful, the bitterness too strong for his liking. But he dared say this to the nurse. She had been kind, only on the job for a week, her whole life ahead of her, while Simon's was coming to its end. Simon has no family to come and visit him. His wife passed on about seven years ago, and his son had died whilst, on a motorbike trip across Europe, he had crashed it somewhere in the Alps when he was traveling down from Switzerland to Italy on the final stretch of his tour. There were no grandchildren, for his son had not married, and Simon had no siblings as well. Simon had lived the last five years alone, locked away in his home. Nighttime came to the hospital, and most of the staff had gone home, leaving behind a small night staff member. Everyone in the room had been tucked away to sleep, lights turned off, and the radio set silent. Simon hates the nights in this place. For some reason, it is the most likely time for someone to die. 
this thought dawns on him. He would hate not to see the rising sun one last time, piercing its rays through the blinds of the window. As Simon drifts off to sleep, a gurgling sound spreads across the room. The elderly lady's bed is opposite his is dying. She is much older than Simon, her skin thinned around her skeleton with veins poking through her flesh. The machine that is connected to her starts blaring an alarm, and an army of nurses comes racing in, trying to bring the elderly lady some comfort. Simon's view is disrupted by the green curtain being pulled. He is only left with the sounds of death. The gurgling gets louder, as if the grim reaper's bony hand is placed around her throat, stopping her from breathing. This goes on for around two minutes before the silence re-enters the room. Time of death is 2.02, says the male doctor. She is wheeled out of the room, never to be seen again. Every time this happens, Simon sits in a cold sweat, feeling the breath of death coming closer. The next morning, Simon stares at the empty bed, fresh sheets and clean tables, as if the elderly lady had never been there, ready to receive the next patient who is coming to their mortal end. The day is as usual as they come. Breakfast is usually something small, jam on toast, then comes the family visits, which Simon passes by sleeping through, feeling jealousy of being left alone. Come evening, there's a bland dinner of supposed meat with some overly boiled vegetables. Before long, the night is here to take another. But tonight, something was not quite right. Simon has a visitor. Simon wakes from his dreary sleep. The corridor lights are still on, but his room is in darkness. Visitor time was finished hours ago, but for some reason, a man is staring at the end of Simon's bed at him. He cannot see the man properly. The room's darkness covers his face, but his presence offers a putrid smell that lingers around Simon's bed. Who are you? Simon asks alarmingly. The figure smiles, his needle-like teeth becoming visible, and his eyes an unnatural red. Your time is almost up, says the figure, his breath smelling like the rotting flesh of a corpse. Who are you? Simon repeats, this time his voice is a little jumpy. The figure walks a little closer, but no sounds of footsteps are heard. Simon presses the emergency button with his finger, calling for aid from the night staff. He taps the button furiously in a desperate plea to get this figure away. The figure's face is within kissing distance of Simon's. The longing stare causes Simon to push deeper into his bed to escape. Your time is almost up. Two nurses come rushing in, 
to find Simon lying in his bed, curled up into his pillow, crying his eyes out. He tries to speak to the nurses, but his speech comes to nothing. They hush Simon, ensure he is comfortable, and check the readings on the machine. Get some sleep, says the older nurse, placing her cream-smoothed hand on his. Almost perfectly on time, another victim of death takes place. The elderly gentleman next to me and his family were with him earlier that day. Simon had heard them say their goodbyes. It was as if they knew he had not much time. Simon felt uncomfortable the next day. His nighttime visitor has certainly frightened him, proving that not all is explainable in this world. He ponders his thoughts. Is there an afterlife after this existence? Though Simon did not hear the voice of an angel look down on him like the vicar of his old church used to say, the figure that visited him seemed threatening and vulgar. Simon thought about his life events. If there is a hell, then that is where he will go once his soul leaves its fleshy cell. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The monotonous day passes by once again, but the unwelcoming night soon comes. Simon tries his best to stay awake. He thinks that it could have been a nightmare, and if so, he doesn't want another one. Sitting up in his bed, he tries to concentrate on something to keep his mind at bay. He thinks of old songs he had sung when he was younger, books he had read, and old memories of holidays and festive occasions. But then it starts again. His mind wouldn't allow him to think of a single happy memory. Instead, his mind floods with times he wishes to forget. Sad memories. Horrible memories. The time he heard the news of the death of his son. The time he watched the final breaths of his beloved wife. The bankruptcy that had almost cost him his life. Simon clenches the bedding, feeling sadness and anger grow within. Stop it! Simon shouts. He closes his eyes and places his hands on the top of his head. Stop it! Simon smacks his head, trying to make the whirling of unwanted memories finish to leave him in peace. Then, they do stop. A tear 
forms in his eye as it rolls down his cheek. He wipes his eye with the back of his hands, feeling a sense of relief. But the feeling of dread soon comes when he hears his name being called in a raspy voice. Simon opens his eyes to see the dark figure once again, but this time he is not alone. Around him are young boys, heads facing the floor. You have visitors, says the voice of the figure. Almost simultaneously, the boys lift their heads to face Simon. Their skin is of rotting flesh, and their eyes are as black as coal. Who are they? Simon whispers. You don't remember. The voice turns deeper. These are the boys who fell for your kindness. These are your victims. Simon didn't want to hear any more. He screamed. Enough, I say! Simon yells at the top of his voice. The tall figure and the three boys walk around the bed. Again, not a footstep heard. All four figures stand over Simon as he lies stuck to his bed. In a split second, all of them show an awful smile. Razor-sharp, pin-like teeth, mouths stretching an unnatural length. The figures dive onto Simon, chomping down on his flesh. He feels the agony as his blood pumps through his veins, pushing at their heads. As if like hungry dogs, their jaws are locked on. The strong stench of death grows, causing Simon to wrinkle and gag. The hospital staff come rushing in to see Simon once again in a cold sweat. His heart rate is through the roof, and his breathing is heavy. Simon screams, waking the other patients who were fast asleep in their beds just a moment ago. Once again, the staff try to calm him down. Come on, Simon. You need to sleep, says the male doctor. I don't want to sleep. I don't want to sleep. The next day, Simon could feel the pain in his arms and legs from where the figures had bit down on him. When he searched his skin for any wounds, he could see no redness, no punctures, nothing. The same day passes again, almost as if Simon can predict what will happen next. He grew to like these uninteresting days. At least he's safe. He is alive. The thought of death fears him more now. He believes something horrible is waiting for him on the other side. Around four o'clock it was the family's final hour of visiting time. As he watches the people around the room, a young child wanders away and stands next to Simon. Hello, says Simon in a confused manner. Tonight's the night you will die, says the child in an emotional way, with no expression on his face, just a blank stare. His parents came to pull him away. Sorry, says the mother. The child's emotions return to him. He has forgotten that he had spoken to Simon as he skips around the room and kisses his grandpa. At five o'clock, the families are escorted from the room. 
Six o'clock. Dinner is served. Once again, the same boring hospital food. Vegetables and a bit of meat. From seven to nine o'clock, the ones who are sane sit there bored, looking around the room as life goes on. Around nine is time for bed, the time Simon has been dreading most. The nurse came around with a new drug for him to take. This was unusual, as he'd been on the same prescription for two weeks. These will help you sleep, says the young nurse. Simon puts up a fuss. I will not be taking these, he shouts, trying to knock the cup from her hand. They eventually do get the sleeping tablets into Simon. They are done with him waking up in the middle of the night screaming. It puts everyone on edge, especially the other patients. Simon can feel the drug take effect in his body almost instantly. He struggles to keep his eyes open as they grow heavier. His head nods uncontrollably. He is scared. He knows that death is coming for him tonight. He looks desperately around the room one last time. No one will help him now. Simon wakes up from his sleep, but not in the hospital bed. He wakes up in a field, somewhere in the heart of what he believes is England, using his legs as come back as, for the first time in nearly a year, he can stand and walk again. The field has no special features. A small collection of trees sits at the bottom, and a structure sits in the next field over. The sky is a featureless gray. Something draws Simon towards the structure in the next field. Memories start coming and he feels like he recognizes the place, but it still hasn't returned to him. How am I here? Simon questions himself. Have I died? Upon reaching the structure, he can see that it is used for storage. He opens the door, which is a little heavy but manageable. Inside is a workbench, some tools and an old tractor that's collecting dust. Nothing special. He feels the splintered wood of the table. Something doesn't feel right or horrible, a feeling of dread. Seconds pass faster. The gray clouds turn a burnt orange as a figure in all black is seen standing in the center of the field. Simon stands in the doorway, stares at the figure for a moment, and recognizes him immediately. The figure has visited him in the hospital. The figure starts to walk towards Simon hastily, causing Simon to jump with fright, frantically closing the door to the shed, hoping it is enough to keep that strange man outside. The few moments of silence are interrupted by the bang of a door, then a second bang, soon followed by a third. Go away, screams Simon, who is now curling up on the floor next to the works bench. You cannot run from your past this time, Simon. The door unlocks itself and swings slightly open, letting in the orange glow. A pale hand comes from behind the door, nails unkept and gaping flesh turning an unhealthy brown. The figure pushes the door open and walks in. Again, not a footstep is heard. Who are you? Simon cries. The figure stands over Simon and looks down, no pity on his face, 
I am your past. Simon didn't understand what he meant by that. The three young boys who visited him in the hospital walked in individually. Once again, their heads are bowed, not looking in Simon's direction. I, I, I don't know what you mean, Simon, please. Oh, you must remember Simon and these boys. Simon looks at them as their heads lift slowly. He still doesn't know. His mind has faded over the years, and a slight memory loss took effect on him a year ago. He especially struggles with faces. Here stands Arthur Bentley, Chris Penance, and Tony Gibbon. Three boys who you have killed, says the raspy voice. The names sounded familiar, names that Simon had not heard since his younger life. Fractions of his memories come back to him. Oh, no, Simon whispers. You remember, says the figure with a sinister smile. That was a, a long time ago. I'm not that man anymore. I found Christ. I asked for his forgiveness every day and night. Simon couldn't control himself. He spoke fast, pleading with the figure. The figure laughs. <laughs> You have never paid for your crimes. You have gone unnoticed. This part is true. Simon has never faced any charge for murdering these boys. He hid the bodies so well, deep in the fields of unsuspecting farmers, far away from where the crime had taken place. This was also back in the 50s and 60s, when forensic science wasn't how it is today. You tricked these boys, playing as an innocent man. They needed your help. They were lost on the country roads, and they trusted you. The voice grew deeper and deeper. I'm sorry, Simon begs. You took them in your van, and you brought them here. You did unspeakable things to their innocence. I know. I know, Simon cries. You got away with it in life. You had plenty of time to pay for your sins, but you cowardly did not. You lived a long life. That's why we took away your wife and your son, so that you can be alone. Simon cries more, crawling to the feet of the figure, begging with all his might to be spared. He is sorry for the crimes he had done. The figure kicks Simon away with his feet. Now you must pay for your sins in death. The figure turns around and walks toward the door, leaving the three boys standing over Simon. They start to breathe heavily, fingers twisting and turning in a terrifying manner, like dogs waiting for the order to bite. You will now pay. The voice turned to its deepest yet, letting off an almost echo. With that, the doors to the outside close shut, leaving Simon and the three boys in complete darkness. A snarl and a screech can be heard, three sets of eyes glowing red, and a hyena's laugh coming from each of the children. Before Simon could have the chance to fend for himself, his legs lost their use once again, 
making him unable to move. The three eyes come closer before he feels the stinging pinch of puncturing teeth in his flesh. One by one, they rip at it, tearing the flesh from his bone. Simon screams in agony. He is repenting to God, but God isn't listening. While the flesh of his arms and legs are gone, they go for his stomach and head. The pain is too much. Though Simon cannot faint, he must feel every bite. When his flesh is gone, he is still alive and conscious. He feels his flesh growing back and again goes through the same torment. Simon's existence in the underworld is to be ripped apart repeatedly. A horrible pain for all eternity. His crime is being paid most brutally. I hope you enjoyed Simon's Past, as written by Marcus Woolley and performed by Nate Dufort. Nate Dufort is a writer, producer, director, and voice actor who splits his time between Detroit and Chicago. He also performs over on the Creepy Podcast, which you can hear by going to www.creepypod.com. We're so thankful to have him share his talents with us. Our second tale of the evening is written by Brian Babb and is performed by Nate Dufort, Michelle Kane, and Otis Jiry. Now, without further ado, I present to you Dream Frequency. It starts in a dark bedroom. I'm asleep and I'm awake. My eyes are open and I cannot move. My heart races and my mind shudders, but my body remains still. I'm staring at something that I know is not there. I almost can't see it in the inky dark of the late night, but I can feel its non-existent weight resting on the end of my bed. I can make out its vague shape outlined against the wall. A person, shrouded like a silhouette, sits on the edge of my bed, nearly on top of my feet. I cannot make out his face, but I can see his jaw working, moving, speaking, yet no words come out that I can hear. After some time, my eyes adjust and I can almost read his lips, but I still cannot make out any decisive meaning. One thing is certain, he repeats himself endlessly. Maybe his jaw churns out that same rhythm every 10 seconds or every 10 minutes. Time is unreliable in these situations, but I know 
that he speaks the same enunciations throughout the night. Sometimes, if I watch him long enough and allow myself to project my own thoughts to his lips, I think I can see him saying my name. Hello, James. 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 This was Mia's voice now. I'm no longer in bed, and my mind and body are mostly awake. Hello, James. She said again, gesturing towards something with one hand and nudging my shoulder with the other. Ground control to James. She repeated one last time. You still with us, spaceman? I blinked several times, and suddenly, the waking image of the previous night's paralysis faded even as the memory cemented itself in my mind's eye. Still here, I said, which was only half a lie. So, what do you think? Cozy, retro, and it would look great next to that desk your dad gave us. Great, I said. Surrounding me were dozens, hundreds maybe, of wooden shapes, wardrobes, cabinets, tables, chairs, each of which had been carved sometime early in the century prior. They were antiques, which meant that they were marked up to a figure which was sure to significantly outweigh their original selling price. What's worse was that each individual item seemed to smell like cigarettes and booze, ripe with age, the scent as much a part of the pieces as their hinges and bolts. But Mia liked antiquing, and I liked Mia, so here I was. You think it still works? I said. Maybe. We could ask. I doubt its speaker quality is much better than our phones, though. I shrugged and eyed up the $200 radio that sat on the carpeted floor in front of me. It was not exempt from the stink which haunted the other antiques, nor the heavy wooden style which seemed to have been all the rage 70 years ago. But the radio speakers were intact, the same fibers stitched together that had likely been joined thrice as long as I'd been alive. The speakers were built into the piece's high arch shape, which gave the impression the whole machine was sort of a waist-high doorway. A motionless dial and dusty knobs protruded from its surface, having last been adjusted God knew how long ago. A wooden carving into the surface of the radio, which looked like a tree with symmetrical branches, covered the speakers. I thought this appealing, but needless artistry would muffle the sound of whatever frequency the user was tuned into. But then again, I wasn't planning on using the ancient thing. All it needed to do was look nice, and it was fulfilling its purpose. I sighed. A lot of money for a broken radio, I said. Come on, it's not like it's the first time we've spent money on something we didn't need. Mia looked up at me with those big brown eyes, her auburn hair cupping her chin perfectly. Begging doesn't work on me, I said. We're getting this because we need to fill that spot next to Dad's desk. No other reason, and definitely 
not because you're begging. Mia smiled. The junk radio probably weighed 50 pounds, but I couldn't let the store attendant carry it out to our car while Mia was with me. I'd never hear the end of it. So instead, I bit the bullet at every turn. And I carried it to the car, I drove it to the apartment, I carried it up the stairs. I placed it next to the mahogany desk that smelled like my dad's cigars. I noted that, considering neither Mia nor myself smoked, our place sure stunk at tobacco. Antiques have a way of doing that to a home. You know, I'm not sure I, I like it after all. Mia said, after I finally managed to put the wooden cathedral, the antique store's name for the radio, not mine, on the precise center of the table next to the desk. I glared at her and showed her my palms. The hard wedges of the radio left thin red indents into the flesh of my fingers, just above my aching, swollen wrists. It should be said that I'm not much of a manual laborer. Kidding! She said, throwing her arms around my waist. It's perfect. Thanks, James. And I smiled. Mia had a weird, foxy sense of humor that matched her petite build and sharp features. It was one of the reasons I liked her. But I didn't have the energy to laugh. Hey, don't take this the wrong way, but you seem a little out of it today. I shrugged. Sorry. Trouble sleeping again? She asked, taking a step back. Well, something like that. Me and I shared a bed long enough for her to know that my sleep was only half my own. Part of many a night belonged to my waking dreams and the complete immobility which accompanied them. Sometimes I was aware of her breathing beside me, warming the bed with her body while I was frozen in place. Sometimes I couldn't feel her at all. You know, she said, I've read about your symptoms online. You're not the only person with this condition. There's stuff you can do to keep it from happening. I know, I said, walking her back to our couch where we both took a seat. Less caffeine, going to bed at the same time every night, avoiding screens. But honestly, Mia, it's not really that big a deal. It's just a dream. She shook her head. I'm worried about you. Sleep deprivation can cause all sorts of issues. A girl I used to work with, she had the same problem. She thought she saw a deer walking around her house every time it happened to her. It got to the point where just mentioning the animal would make her tremble. I don't want that to happen to you. I placed an arm over her shoulder and offered my best, it's all going to be fine face. It won't. And didn't that girl you worked with, Ashley, wasn't it? Wasn't she an alcoholic or something? Mia rolled her eyes. Yeah, but that's not the point. We're talking about sleep deprivation. Your sleep deprivation, not hers. I don't want to wake up one night to you having a heart attack. I stifled a laugh. I'm not going to have a heart attack. Hell, it doesn't even happen to me most nights. Maybe once every couple weeks. Sometimes less. Mia relaxed a little resting her head on my shoulder. I know, but that story you told me, it's just so creepy. A man sitting on our bed, whispering to you? 
You can only see the shape of him? It just it gives me the creeps. I know I would be terrified if it happened to me. I knew the radio didn't work. The antique store employee told us as much when we bought it. But the dangling cord hung uselessly from its back, which annoyed me. It would look better plugged in, regardless of whether it functioned. That was why we bought the damn thing. To look nice. And a loose cord didn't match the aesthetic. So, I plugged it in. The plug fit neatly into the socket behind the table where it sat. No adapter necessary. Job done. All that was left was to let the radio fade into the background of the apartment. Like one of our paintings, or the coatless coat rack by the front door. I walked back to the couch, flopped onto a cushion, and got back to what I'd been watching before I noticed the loose cord. It was some news feature with a very serious-faced reporter giving updates on some coastal power outages further north. He read his copy in a stern, worried tone of voice as he outlined how the blackouts could affect shipping lanes and supply chains. Normally, it's not the sort of thing I pay mind to, but something about the reporter's voice intrigued me. It was familiar in an oddly comforting sort of way, and it held my attention to the point I almost didn't hear the faint static sound coming from behind me. Almost. 200,392. I didn't react. I was still watching the news. I registered the meager, muffled voice in the same way that someone does a grunt from their settling house or the ticking of a clock. For all purposes, it hadn't even happened. 200,387. That time, I did react. I craned my neck behind me, checking the source of the sound. We'd had the radio for about a week, and I was almost used to its presence as a still and silent member of the household. The hell? I said under my breath. I grabbed the remote from the coffee table and muted the television. Sure enough, a faint but distinct static buzz echoed from the speakers of the radio. I raised my eyebrows. So the thing had a pulse after all? Well, maybe we'd gotten a deal on it if the antique store had sold us a good radio for the price of a broken one. Another number. Reaching the table, I leaned over the radio and began twisting one of the knobs beneath the dial. I wasn't entirely sure how the antiquated tech worked, so I figured I'd learn on the fly. I hoped to find the classic rock station so that I could surprise Mia with the sound of Journey coming through speakers almost twice as old as the band when she got home. However, the more I adjusted the knobs, the fainter the sound got. Come on, I whispered. 92.3, 92.3. It was no use, I sighed. The radio static echoed on the edge of audibility as I stepped away from the wood cathedral. 200,373. Yeah, rub it in, I said, reclaiming my seat on the couch and starting up the movie for the second time. I don't know why I didn't just turn it off or unplug it. Maybe I harbored some belief that it would fix itself if I left it on for a while. You know, let it warm back up after its decades-long nap. 200,000. 
370. I fell asleep before I could tell if it had fixed itself. It had been a long week at the office, and with Mia visiting her sister for the day, I knew I'd probably end up napping some before bedtime. When my eyes fluttered open and adjusted to the dimming light of the late day, the wall clock read 632. My back ached from having spent the past three hours curled up on the couch, and I attempted to stretch, but my muscles didn't respond to my brain's orders. I tried again to no avail. I couldn't so much as wiggle my toes. Another paralytic episode. As soon as I realized what was happening, the thought of the shadowy figure took center stage in my consciousness. And, as is always the case with dreams, as soon as I remembered him, he appeared. He was in a new place this time, somewhere I'd never seen him before. On my television screen. The background of the TV showed my own room, dim and dark as it normally was in the middle of the night. The figure sat shrouded in shadows on the edge of my bed, his jaw working as it always did, and still no sound came out. He was staring directly at a camera that wasn't there, at me, frozen on the couch. 200,210. Jesus, I said aloud, snapping out of the dreamlike state almost instantly. The radio's monotonous, toneless, voiceless countdown had come from the figure's mouth, even as the wood cathedral's sound echoed from behind me. I felt a surge of panic and confusion, something that had never happened to me during these episodes. My spot on the couch was soaked through with sweat. On the wall, the clock now read 7.13. I'd spent nearly 40 minutes in that half-awake state, despite it feeling like a few seconds. Dread bubbling like tar in my gut, I turned my head towards the radio. No sound came from it, not even the static of a blank frequency. It was still plugged into the wall, but gave no indication of power surging through its inner mechanisms. The old piece sat there on the table, its arched frame looking too much like a silent gravestone. I turned back to the TV and increased the volume, hoping to drown out my sudden paranoia with infomercials and 90s-era sitcoms, a tried-and-true remedy. I remained in a half-state of fight-or-flight, unsure of whether my nightly mania was creeping into my waking hours. When Mia arrived, the sound of the door unlatching sent my heart racing. She came through with her usual smirk, the one where the corner of her mouth twitched a little higher than the other. The expression which I'd grown to love vanished the instant she saw me. She was smart, like I said. She knew something was up. I tried to play it cool, but to no avail. It happened again, she said. I didn't bother denying it. Just nodded my head. On the couch? I nodded again. Jesus, James, you're white as a sheet. Sorry, the radio, it worked its way into my head. Had a dream about it, I think. I saw the... the usual guy on the TV set. I wrung my fingers, sucking air between my teeth. The TV kept playing. A laugh track sounded off. I reached for the remote and muted the set. It was weird. It was like I could hear him through the radio. Like his voice was just behind me, 
You want to get rid of it? The radio, I mean. Or the TV. Or both. Mia asked. She was serious, too. She loved the stupid radio, and I'm sure she enjoyed the TV as well, but I guess I still took first prize overall. I appreciated it. No, come on. I I was just watching a horror movie. It's hardly the first time one of those has given someone a nightmare. I just... I'll stay off of screens for the rest of the day like we talked about. We'll go to bed early. No problem. I didn't mention that I'd heard the radio when I was almost certainly still awake. That I'd even tried to pick up a stronger signal. I gave it a quick glance from the couch. Still plugged in. My mind hadn't made that part up. But the voice? Well, that was tougher to explain. At the moment, I chalked it up to early-onset sleep paralysis. I doubted that was a thing, but it was a more soothing answer compared to a schizophrenic episode. But all the same, Mia didn't look satisfied. If this keeps up, we're going to a doctor. There's gotta be something we can do about this. A drug, a therapy. I don't know, but something. I didn't want to argue about it, didn't have the energy, so I silently agreed with a nod. Mia slid onto the couch next to me, like she had the day before. You're burning up. I can feel the heat coming off you. You sure you're okay? You know I get hot when I sleep. And you had a dream about that busted old radio? Yeah. I was reading off numbers. Like a countdown. Mia pulled a ghoulish face. Ten. Nine. Eight. She said with something like a Transylvanian accent. I laughed. Close. Numbers were bigger, though, in the hundreds of thousands. Mia shrugged. What happens when it reaches the bottom? Certain doom. End of days. Moon turns to blood. It was all revealed to me in a dream. I can't wait to hear more from the Book of James, Mia said, placing a hand over her heart and fluttering her eyes. What should I do if I'm to be saved? I considered her question with great deliberation. You know, I think we're both already damned. 100,644. The voice said in its usual staticky but borderless voice. No age, no identifying characteristic to it other than it sounded as though it was coming through an AM radio, which I suppose it was. The figure on the edge of my bed continued voicing the numbers, even as I heard them coming through the radio in the living room. I couldn't move, and it was one of those times I couldn't even feel Mia in the bed beside me, but the shadowy thing's weight was noticeable near my feet, the shape of him compressing into my mattress. 100,637. I stared at his lips, listening to the voice on the radio with unusual focus. I don't know why I was more clear-headed on this occurrence, but I was. I could see its outline pressed against the wall, the faint shadow it cast in the darkness. The simple, direct voice was even more understandable from its relatively distant source. More than ever before in times like this, I was awake. And then suddenly, the sound stopped. The mouth kept working, but the sound was gone. There was nothing 
And then I was shaking, 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 and... James! Mia shook me so hard I felt my head hit the bedpost. What the hell, Mia? I said. But the truth was, I didn't feel all that tired. It really was as if I'd been awake for a while, just watching the shadowy thing speak. James! She said in a shaky voice. I looked at her, the sweat soaking her face, her bloodshot eyes, her ashen skin. If this was how I looked after I suffered a sleep paralysis event, then I now understood her growing concern. Mia, what's wrong? I said in a softer tone. You okay? I lowered my voice. Is there someone in the house? Did you hear something? She nodded. My heart and stomach dropped. I kept an old baseball bat under the bed for situations like this, though I never thought I'd need it. Not like that, Mia said. She must have seen the look on my face and known what I was thinking. The, the radio, the numbers, the, the ones you said you heard, in the hundreds of thousands, from the radio, I, I heard it. Now, you might think I'm crazy, but this actually sent a brief wave of relief through my system. If Mia heard the radio, then that meant I wasn't hearing things myself. It meant I'd picked up some old station where the numbers were automatically read. It would explain why I could hear the staticky voice in my sleep, why the numbers matched what I thought the shadow man was whispering every night he appeared. Hey, honey, it, it's fine. I should have told you. I plugged the radio in myself, picked up a station that I don't think is actively used anymore. It's just numbers rolling on repeat, like, like an old NASA frequency or something. She shook her head furiously, too panicked to even breathe properly. I know! I unplugged it before we went to bed. What? I said, sitting up against the headboard. Why? I don't know. I just... I didn't like the look of it plugged in. I can't explain why. It just... It didn't seem right somehow. But it doesn't matter. Just... Just look. With a growing sense of dread... I turned my eyes towards the end of our bed. That thing which had Mia so terrified was only just visible and fading fast. But I could see it, a compression in the mattress on top of the sheets, as if someone had been sitting there just a few moments before. I remembered the last thing I heard before Mia shook me awake. A number still in the hundreds of thousands but a lot smaller than the ones I heard yesterday. The ones that Mia could hear as well. A countdown. 100,620. I hope you enjoyed Dream Frequency. As written by Brian Babb and performed by Nate Dufort, Michelle Kane, and Otis Jiry. Brian Babb is a graduate of the University of North Georgia with a degree in political science and a minor in English. His first novel, The City Above, can be found on Amazon. 
The novel recounts the investigation into an active serial killer in the 19th century city of Rookhaven and the conspiracy revealed as the investigation unfolds. Brian continues to suffer the indignities unique to those still rooting for the Atlanta Falcons. You can hear more of Michelle Kane's work on the Creepy Podcast as well. Longtime resident and powerhouse Otis Jiry has his very own show here on our network, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, which you can hear every Sunday night. On that note, be sure to check out the other shows we offer on our network. We have Fear from the Heartland, featuring horror stories brought to you from the Heartland, airing Wednesdays. Eric Peabody's Horror Hill, a podcast dedicated to some of our deeper and darker tales. We hope you check him out. And Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs Fridays, featuring some southern down-home horror. Now, our weekly Descent into the Depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs>